Welcome to the London Politica podcast. My name is Manas Chavla, and this is where we join industry thought leaders and experts to uncover the nexus of politics, markets, and society. Today, we're going to dissect the ongoing war in Ukraine, and the guest joining me today is the CEO of Civiline, a leading global strategic risk intelligence consultancy. He's also the president of the Association of International Risk Intelligence Professionals, and has previously served as an army officer. So he has quite the sort of multifaceted prison for approaching the topic at hand. Uh, Joining me is Justin Crumps. It's so wonderful to have you on the show. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for that very kind introduction. Right, Justin. So you're you're the CEO of this large risk consultancy. You're president of the Primary Risk Intelligence Association in the UK, and in many ways, we're living through some of the most geopolitically risky times in recent memory. So your phone must really be ringing off the hook. Um, what, what's that like? And and how have you been approaching this conflict with your different professional hats? You know, we think every time's a busy time, and this certainly is obviously uh, very full on. But uh, I mean, I was working during nine eleven. Uh, in fact, that's when I joined the army full time. I've been a reservist for a number of years before that. And I, I was an investment banker at JP Morgan at the time. Um, and I've been through several banking crises, but I was just in the process of going to the army when when that happened. So I, I kind of picked up on the immediate aftermath of that. And then any period of unrest that followed. So I mean, obviously the economic um, issues, 2008 onwards and everything that fell out of that, the Arab Spring, uh, protests and riots in London. Uh, you know, there's always seems to be something. And I think that's, uh, the hallmarks of our industry, really, that um, there is always something brewing. And while much of this stuff might seem theoretical when we discuss it, and I remember being at university in the mid-90s looking at these things, and we were debating if it was the end of history, which I don't think any of us actually believed. But um, it was one of the theories at the time was that you know, liberal democracy had won, and that was really the end of anything interesting happening, and it was all going to be um, a steady way forward uh, from then. Uh, and it's just changed. Obviously, it changed most notably with 9-11. But that was just a reminder that these things go on, these risks we talk about, these abstracts like the future of China, the future of Russia and things I was studying. And indeed, Russia was my main area of study in the mid 90s, both with the military and uh, in academia. These things are real and they do have an impact. And in this time that maybe our horizons are short because of social media and our attention spans can rapidly be dragged away. It's a reminder that these slow-burning things do, in the course of human history, start to have a very large effect. And I think that's why this industry is is so interesting, relevant, um, and keeps me stimulated for as long as it has done, uh, just because of the reality of what we're dealing with every day. It's very interesting. I mean, and, and there also seems to be sort of like a two-way relationship. Uh, between uh, you know the way the industry adapts to uh, sort of accommodate its clients in the light of these crises and the way these crises change the industry and the way we think of these questions themselves. And I'm wondering, yeah. I mean, the you know the sort of war in Ukraine, it, it was a sort of thing where as the true buildup started, there was this emerging debate about whether or not it would materialize. But I think broadly speaking, it's caught most people by surprise, at least to the degree in which it's unfolded. Um, and I'm wondering if you think this sort of, uh, you know, is, is going to change the industry in any particular way and, and the way we sort of form our methodologies and think about these questions. Yeah, it's something really pertinent there. I, I guess I'd first of all say, actually, we talk about the industry like it's the established thing. And it still amazes me to hear you, you talking about it in that way, because there wasn't an industry really 15 years ago plus. Um, nothing like on this scale. And you made a very good point that uh, we adapt to meet the needs of our clients, but actually the clients have recognized the need for intelligence and insight that wasn't there um, really in the past. 
I, I think these crises have brought that into focus. And of course, as people have got used to having insight and intelligence, it's made senior decision makers think, God, what was I doing before this? But that was partly a reflection of the comparative lack of actual real impact that political events or geopolitical events were having on business. It was an easy time, really, after the end of the Cold War. Um, and of course, as times have turned back and it's become more challenging to do business, that, that's changed their attention. Um, but on to yeah, the, the other part of the question. Sorry, Manash, you have to remind me. <laughs> I managed to sidetrack myself with uh, answering the second part of your question. I probably forgot the first part. No, just, just just broadly, I mean, I mean, the way in which kind of you think of these questions in Sibylline, have you, sort of, mm. you know, have to imagine the need to sort of change your methodology, the way you approach them in light of the fact this conflict was unprecedented? Yeah. Oh, yes. Thank you. Well, you know, I'll blow our own tiny trumpet here that we didn't uh, for a moment think this wasn't happening. Uh, we had the likelihood of a Russian attack at something like 95 percent um, in January. And we've been obviously been tracking this for an extensive period of time. Uh, in fact, one of the first big projects my team really did was back in 2014 around Euromaidan and the start of the Donbass conflict. And uh, my head of intelligence, who handles the geopolitical side, is is very much a specialist in that area, uh, partly because of the timing of when we stood up that team and, and that being one of the first things we focused on. So we had the virtue of being on it for a long period of time. And again, my um, study of the Russian military goes back to the mid-90s. Now, one of the things I've never done, though, I never really looked over my shoulder at what other people are saying or doing. Um, mm. I think it's really important because I think otherwise you get this herd mentality. And so we deliberately had no interest in what any other provider or company was saying. Um, we were looking at the raw data. We were looking at what we were seeing of Russian intentions, what we understood of the mindset of the senior leadership, um, the strategic factors that said that Putin would never get a better time to do this than he was going to get in that window. Um, you know, I'm fortunate that one of my senior advisors was um, a Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe until recently, so a very senior NATO figure. Um, and one of the reasons that we worked together is because I worked with him at NATO looking at, at some of these issues and we'd always got on and our study of the Russian mindset. So we were banging our drum that this was a very major problem, a very serious problem. Of course, that was slightly difficult when Zelensky himself was trying to talk down the problem at the time, as you may recall. Um, and then you know, we turned out later, and we didn't know it at the time, that a lot of the more prominent risk firms were suggesting that um, this wasn't going to happen. And they were all agreeing with each other that it was a fantastic bluff by the Russians because it made no sense. You know, They probably wouldn't win in, in actual fact if you really dissected it. Of course, we've seen that, um, at least so far. The reason I mention that, you know, it isn't just to say that we're awesome. I mean, obviously, the team is awesome. I'm proud of them every day, and that was a good call. But I think it's having the courage. Um, to make predictions. And the biggest failing I've really seen of people in this industry, and actually arguably, especially as it gets bigger and becomes an industry, is that tendency of people um, either to assume an expertise they don't have. And I think a real expert is someone who acknowledges they're still learning. And you know, I'm certainly regard myself as far from expert. Other people are kind enough to say I am, but I'm I'm still learning every day. I don't know a fraction of things I need to know, and I'm very aware of what I don't know, and I strive to kind of open those gaps and challenge my knowledge in those areas. Um, but again, I don't take anything for granted. So I try and go back to the data and build up from that. I won't just ask someone. Um, but the other key point is giving an opinion. We're here to get the monkey off the decision makers back, right? You know that. Um, people are trying to make decisions and they want an opinion. And I find that so many people are afraid to give the opinion because they don't know the answer and they can't handle dealing with probability. Um, or again, they consider themselves too expert and uh, therefore don't take a nuanced enough view to give something that's 
that's actually considered. So and so I offer that that case study. I think it's um mm. I think it was a really important lesson I identified for my team and for myself about how we need to approach these challenging situations, but no one's paying us to summarize what they can read in the newspaper. Mm. You know, that's just not the way to go about business. It's um and it's coming from that really detailed level of intelligence work that sets aside I think a genuine advisory firm from you know almost anyone that can set up a company with a with a laptop and some you know relatively bright people and access to to social media and web stuff can create something mm. that looks very much like a much more sophisticated company but it's not if it doesn't have that ability to really get to that piece of insight and the judgment to give an opinion to a senior decision maker that's reasoned and grounded and uh, properly assured you know, rather than just a, a finger in the air or, you know, a baseless opinion. And and that's the real challenge. And I think a lot of companies have played it safe or chosen to play it safe over the years. Um, and that's okay on small things, but so many got it wrong on COVID and, you know, the vast majority got it wrong on Russia. And really of the things over the last 10 years, those are the two that you just had to get right. You know, otherwise, what were you being paid for? So, you know, I think that's just a really important area for everyone to bear in mind. And it's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable for analysts to be in a position where people are listening to, to your opinion. I mean, you've actually strived for years to get them to do it, and then you suddenly realize how important it is to get it right um, when you're on the spot. And then you have those nagging feelings of, have I, have I turned over every stone? Have I considered every hypothesis? Have I challenged myself? Mm. You know, and that is hard, but that is mm. what we are paid for. It's not just to amalgamate things on social media. Right, right. I find it very interesting. It sort of struck me, you kept mentioning um, understanding the Russian mindset there. And then you also mentioned this sort of point about not taking for granted what we know. And I think that's an interesting sort of combination because when I study international relations at university, um, we're trapped through this sort of very classical realist lens um, of how uh, different countries interact uh, and, you know, power balancing and what causes, you know, countries to go to war. And I think this conflict in particular is bringing that sort of central assumption into question. Um, and and the reason I bring up the Russian mindset is because there's always been this sort of uh, you know kind of pervasive assumption among analysts uh, at least for the last sort of two decades or so that Putin is to some degree a rational actor um, that what he does is to some degree you know motivated by achieving sort of revisionist ambitions for Russia yada yada um, and I think it really is this war in particular and like you said you know the the expectation. And the fact that sort of everyone knows they're not particularly winning on the ground and this could have been predicted beforehand, that's causing us to question um, this, this assumption that Putin is a rational actor. What do you, what do you make of that? And, and how does that uh, Putin and his rationality or it being called into question sort of affect the state of play? Yeah, I mean, you've touched on a question I often get asked by uh, international relations grads, and, you know, I am one of them. Um, but I'm always asked when people are saying, or oh, do you accept this view we're being taught or do you go down the more personality driven route? And um, I've always gone down the personality route because all uh, political decisions, even economic decisions or anything else are driven by people making decisions um, either as national leaders or en masse. And psychology uh, really, really, really affects the stuff we do. And actually my advice to anyone looking to enter the field, you know, sadly speaking to you right now in the, you know, uh, dealing uh, in the halls of LSE, dealing with uh, IR exams, um, is, of <laughs> course, the fact that actually I found it to be an entirely useless degree for this field, um, <laughs> which is ironic. But um, I've never once, in all of the stuff I've done in building you know, companies, uh, turning over tens of millions, ever called on uh, anything I actually learned doing politics and IR, really. Um, that was largely irrelevant. Um, I've called on huge amounts of what I've learned about psychology um, and studying and looking at national leaders 
you know, national decision making, national character. And in some ways, that's so much easier now because you can kind of see the raw data much more easily than we could before. Maybe that's where theories had more space. But like so many things, you even see it with the stock market and other stuff. I mean, of course, as everyone starts to understand the theories, some people start to gain the theories and then the theories become irrelevant. Um, so I've never subscribed to theory. I mean, I think Russia was the clearest thing where you, if you understood Putin's statements and mindset over a 20 year period, the, the people around him and how they thought, um, you know, his own background and growth, the country's background and growth. And the fact they had 200,000 people lined up on a neighboring country's borders that they'd lined up over the course of a year were lying about doing. It looks awfully like they're going to invade, doesn't it? You know, especially when they start taking blood out of their soldiers and painting Zs and Bs and circles on their vehicles to get them all organized into the right columns, going to the right places. Now, when you can even see which roads they're lining up to go down, it starts to look really like they're about to invade. Um, you know, so all the theory and sort of the Kremlin watchers are saying, well, this won't happen because it doesn't fit the theory or well, I mean, it's just going to be economically disastrous for Russia. I can't see why they'd do it. That was to miss the psychology and also the psychology of our failure in Afghanistan, the Russian focus, particularly on other leaders, which they take to an extreme uh, in this sort. But you know, their perception of Biden, their perception of the US leadership, their perception of the state of the US after what happened in the capital. And this comes back to that point I made to you earlier about the network and connections between events you know, and how those things cascade. Um, and modeling, this is why international relations modeling is so imperfect, because no one can quantify really how those events interact with each other. You know, to how much and to what percentage was uh, the capital riots on 6th January um, linked directly to the invasion of Ukraine? Was it you know, 0.1%? Was it 0.7%? Who knows? Was it a factor? Yes. I imagine the Russians looking at this would have said, hmm, America seems to be falling apart. And to be fair, we've had a role in promoting that. Um, you know, this is great. They can't make decisions. They're very unlikely to be able to back up Ukraine if we do stuff. And we have a real desire to do so for historical reasons, social reasons, uh, psychological reasons, religious reasons, whatever you want to, to describe. Um, I've never really been let down with that view of looking at leaders in particular as, as individuals. Uh, and it's funny, because you look at the press, it's obsessed with Johnson this, what was Johnson thinking? What was Johnson doing? You know, so it's very clear in media and other things that that's how we regard Mm. Uh, leadership and decision making and yet in international relations theory we go down these other routes that um, you know it's all about particular levers of power and everything else um, and I'm just not sure it stacks up I mean all of those things are true but if I had to pick one I'd say understand your enemy I wouldn't say understand the theory around the, your enemy that they may or may not have read themselves and be, may or may not be following I think go back to first principles and um, the old joke finally actually about the British army, which is that we have the best doctrine in the world, but we never read it. Um, and it's the same with this. It's like, there's lots of things that explain stuff, but they actually rarely fit real life events. And then I guess on the plus side, everyone gets to go and rewrite their book and produce another edition. But um, it's always attempts to try and put order around something that's inherently disordered. And the only thing that's constant in it is it's people making decisions. And if you understand why they're making decisions and what matters to them, then you can really start to get a better feel, I think, how it goes. I mean, that's just my opinion, and I'm not an international relations lecturer, um, but I've just never found that theoretical approach to be useful when compared to the personal one. So I'd encourage everyone to think in those, in those ways. Plus, apart from anything else, understanding psychology helps you lead teams, work with people, you know, and do things successfully. So I think it's something we should all know more about. And uh, you know, I, I think it just helps you in any field of endeavor.
Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, I think it's it's this really interesting paradox that uh, in the last you know couple of decades, access to intelligence has never been easier. Mm-hmm. You know, we see these online uh, enthusiasts using open source intelligence tools, um, you know, sort of uncovering all sorts of gaps in government intelligence that would have been impossible just ten decades ago, just ten years ago. And you just look yeah. at the sort of things that Bellingcat's doing, and, and you know, it's astonishing. But then at the same time. Um, you know, the, the piece of the puzzle that's really hard to grasp and perhaps most sort of defining for the way the conflict unfolds is understanding the psychology of leaders, um, which is, you know, you can't really use OSINT tools to crack that down. Um, but I also want to go back to this other thing you said, which is, uh, you know, to, to what degree was uh, what Putin's doing motivated by the actions of the West themselves? I mean, certainly one of these sort of retrospective explanations we're getting increasingly in the media is that uh, the initial gamble from Putin's side was that you know, leading this invasion would essentially break an already fragile Western alliance apart. Um, and, and we've certainly seen nothing of the like. Um, and, and I'm wondering, I mean, from what you could have predicted, the sort of Western response to be in terms of arming Ukraine uh, with humanitarian aid or military supplies uh, or the sort of economic um, assistance. I mean, from what you could have forecasted that to have been before the war started to what it actually has been in the last eight weeks. Um, were you surprised by that to any degree? Was that expected? I'll be honest. I mean, that was a close run thing. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, after the attack happened, I think you know, the EU in particular whiplashed. And you may remember the, the game of pass the mix that started going on about two days after the invasion, uh, about you know, mm. su- supplying Ukraine with more aircraft and everything else, which funny enough is rumbling right up to now uh, in that area. Um, but before that, of course, France and Germany, um, and there's a reason the French military intelligence head got sacked, um, which is that you have to sack Macron otherwise. But um, it was the fact that uh, you know, the French and the Germans, the weekend before the invasion, were still briefing it wasn't going to happen. Mm. And that you shouldn't believe the exaggerated Anglo-Saxons. I mean, I felt better in my own assessment that it was going to happen by the fact that the people who agreed with me included Joe Biden, Boris Johnson and Stoltenberg in NATO. So I was like, well, if I'm going to agree with three people who say this is going to happen, I'll go with them. You know, because I know the assets they've got at their disposal, and I trust those things. And we were pursuing this path, talk about openness of intelligence, of, of pushing out the intelligence um, all the way through. Now, it didn't stop the invasion. You know, and I think exposing the Russian disinformation campaigns and their strategic maneuvering, which we've been tracking for obviously a long period of time, didn't stop anything. But I think it did at least mentally prepare people. And I think that's where it did have a, a success was that there was more expectation that this could happen. I think there was a real desire to believe it wouldn't, from especially from within the EU. Um, less so, obviously, the uh, the countries on the eastern flank who remember and have always looked towards Russia as you know something that was going to wake up and come after them again. And that was been very much in their mindset, so they didn't require much persuasion. But you know, I think Central Europe and, and particularly the countries more dependent on Russia for oil and gas, despite the warnings of twenty years that this was a foolish thing to do. Um, you know, it's been too convenient. Uh, and we come back to easy living, don't we, as a, as a driver of some of this. Uh, and again, our priorities, maybe, versus Russia's, uh, you know, ours being economic prosperity is good for everyone. Russia's being national pride is good for everyone. And, and national pride is kind of what Putin thinks it is. So, you know, within that framework, I think there was enough preparatory work done that the reaction was strong. And of course, you know, we've been supporting Ukraine in lots of small ways for a long period of time training teams through Operation Orbital from the UK, for example, um, and of course, US training. Um, and the Ukrainian military has modernized out of all recognition since 2014 with outside help. And you're seeing the benefits of that now in the way they're fighting. The support still doesn't go far enough. 
for what they need at this stage. I think the assessment was that Russia would have been stronger than it was and, and should have uh, effectively bowled Ukraine over in the first few days. And it failed to do so for a bunch of reasons, many of it its own fault, um, and most of which actually linked to a very faulty intelligence appreciation in the first place of whether or not Ukraine would fight. Um, and again, there's a reason an awful lot of intelligence officers on the Russian side have lost their jobs as well. Um, you know, and, and I think more to come because they've had a comprehensive intelligence failure of their own uh, about the opposition, the fact that Europe has united and NATO has united to a much greater extent. And actually the strategic disaster that Putin's now got, that actually he's brought NATO uh, reinforced and ready to his doorstep when it wasn't before. You know, he's turned something that really wasn't a threat to something that's ready to be one. Um, just by virtue of of what he's done with this, and that was all faulty intelligence. So, you know, I think that's played out very interestingly. The openness of intelligence on our side, the closeness of it on theirs, and mm. the culture of telling the boss what he wants to hear um, in in Russia, uh, particularly in the intelligence environment, which has massively backfired on them uh, because they thought they were stronger than they were. They thought Ukraine was weaker than it was. And they thought the West was more divided politically than than they than they would have uh, believed. And those assessments were all faulty, but I don't think it's because they didn't have the data. I think it's because they drank their own Kool-Aid to an extent. And also there was a culture of only putting forward the favorable intelligence reports that got you patted on the back. Right. And there's that, that's that very jarring video as well that, that went viral of uh, Putin and his head of intelligence um, as Putin sort of uh, you know, really stomped on his feet uh when he was asked questions about crimea and other things and then made sure he's following yeah. official russian lines so i think those things are sort of you know small symbols of, of the sort of chokehold he has on intelligence and also everyone just essentially becomes a yes man right yeah. um i, I want to go back to sort of uh, another thing um that you said i mean you know the weekend following up to the war germany and france uh did not agree with american british nato intelligence uh on what they saw coming um and that to me is really really striking um, and I mean, there's, there could be, I, I can think of a number of possible explanations. I think something might have to do with, you know, the, the sort of failure of the absence of, you know, WMDs following Iraq, or it could be anything to do with, you know, Trump and, and how he sort of eroded credibility in the United States and its intelligence capabilities, or perhaps it's just wishful thinking, you know, France has elections coming up, Germany has a very new government, um, perhaps a combination of all of these. I mean, what, what do you make of it? Why did that happen? And also, I mean, why did no one pay enough attention to that? Uh, that major disagreement. You've hit one of the key things I like to say about anything, which is it's always a combination of factors. There's never one trigger. Mm. You know, it's this combination of factors coming together. And part of our job is to read how those factors are playing out and then be able to assign probability to outcomes or, you know, or at least understand where they're going. And I said, precise modeling doesn't work. So you have to get used to having these kind of mental models of, you know, how much is this going to affect the environment and, and have, you know, in what way um, for anything you see. So, I mean, all the things you mentioned are all relevant. You know, it, it, the cumulative course of, of human action is, if you like, it's sort of a, it's a landslide, but it's made up of lots of pebbles. You know, and all the things you're mentioning are sort of shaping the, the flow of pebbles, and, and you get the landslide. Um, that's so. You know, any and all of this applies. I mean, I mean, it was astounding, really, as you say, that we had a very clear warning from national governments, but they've all been discredited, and not least though because of the actions of the adversary. In this case, I mean, we've done some of this to ourselves, but a lot of this has been stoked by. People that have used um, you know, our freedom against us in the way that we approach things. And uh, you know, I think the Russians always found our lack of control of the media to be laughable. Um, you know, and in fact, the head of RT just this week came out on uh, Russia One and uh, promoted the idea that, of course, information should be controlled. Otherwise, you don't have a viable state. 
you know, look at China, they control information. Don't you want to be more like China and less like those, you know, Western democracies with their gun crime and, you know, their homosexuality and all these other things and this transgenderism they're dealing with and, you know, all the stuff that Russia uses to malign the Western approach and Western liberal democracy, um, you know, and, and applying that, that thing to it. So let's not forget that one of the reasons that those warnings were not hindered is because Russia had created the ground for those warnings not to be heeded by helping drive the mistrust um, of our leadership, of ourselves, and the division in our societies. Now, I don't think they've had to do all that much because I think we've done a pretty good job of creating a lot of that ourselves as well, but they've certainly helped stoke it along um, and uh, you know, have, have taken these sorts of active measures and use of misinformation, disinformation, which is a 100-year-old tactic for the Russian state um, to do this uh, and use those things to, to create those conditions. And I think that's one of the key reasons, um, as you say, you know, we've, we've made our own mistakes, the no WMDs in Iraq, you know, for example. And again, that was an example of someone picking the intelligence they wanted to read, not the whole picture. You know, we understand why that happened. Um, but of course, you, you know, that certainly doesn't help. The fact that people aren't used to getting good intelligence, the fact that COVID meant that most people didn't really trust the government, uh, I think, after this period of time. You know, certainly a, a substantial majority of people were very skeptical. And I was in Salisbury the night that the Skripal uh, poisoning happened. Um, and it was fascinating to me, even I think it was December, late December. Um, so while this Russian thing wasn't really on most people's horizon, but just two people that I was uh, in a room with were talking about the Skripal incident and saying, well, of course it was us, wasn't it? Because it came from Porton Down. And these were educated people. You know, and I know for an absolute fact, obviously it was not that. But I couldn't believe I was hearing educated British people blaming the British government for the attacks on people on British soil that killed a British citizen you know, using chemical weapons. Um, and we're prepared to blame us for it rather than the people who actually did it. And that's sort of shocking. But that's a level of distrust in our own society that's been created. That's a hard place to row back from. But again, to some extent, Russia's maybe helped with this a bit now because uh, that was shown to be right and truthful. But we still have Partygate going on as a distraction. Biden's still got distractions going. And of course, Russia's promoting all these things uh, as best as they can to discredit our leaders and undermine them, ridicule them. Uh, and of course, all this stuff finds traction in other parts of the world. So, you know, while we can be pleased with our successes, I think have created the conditions to give Ukraine a better chance, although they're not out of the woods by a long, long stretch of the imagination. Um, and there's so much more we could be doing. I think uh, we can be pleased with that. But against that, yeah, it just shows the level of erosion of trust in our societies and, and the division which you know we've all commented on but i think that's become such a defining feature it's a real challenge to know how we're ever going to go back from that but i think all any of us can do is just hold up the beacon of truth it is the role of intelligence to speak truth unto power so all we can ever do is you know just describe it like we see it and you know inevitably it means that you're politicized in these sorts of environments if you're not scrupulously careful to make sure you're not um, but any, if you have an opinion on any divisive issue, you're going to be accused of being polarized. You just have to rise above it and you know, stick to your values and stick to your course in your analysis and you know, lay out the truth as best as we can find it. Uh, and that's all we can do to counter that. Mm. Um, there's another side of this that I also want to sort of touch upon. You, you spoke briefly about China. Um, and for the last couple of decades, I mean, we've seen a very interesting involving, you know, Sino-Russian relationship. Russia has been fueling... Uh, the rise of China's military, providing the PLA yep. with aid that averages roughly, you know, a billion, billion and a half dollars a year. 
Um, and, you know, very interestingly, last month, Russia asked China for military aid. And, you know, yeah, well, it said yes. As of now, it hasn't, you know, to my best knowledge, provided Putin with you know anything substantial. Um, what, what's the prospect of, of this happening in the future of China, of Beijing sort of actively joining the effort with Russia, providing it with any substantial amount of aid? Um, and how could that change, perhaps, the calculus of the war? Yeah, I mean, I don't think Beijing's going to openly provide support to Russia. I think under the surface, they're absolutely providing support in lots of subtle ways. And one of the smallest ways would be you know, stopping the sale of DJI commercial uh, drones, as you know, DJI, largest commercial uh, off-the-shelf drone manufacturer for hobby drones and things. Um, you know, and they were quietly told, don't send anything to Ukraine. Now, of course, they can get to Ukraine because people in Poland buy them, give them to people in Ukraine, so they're getting there. But that was a sort of subtle way of, of picking a side in the conflict. Um, and of course, financial support, uh, continued economic support, not joining sanctions, um, sitting out the votes in the UN, all the things that, that China's been able to do to sort of not be associated directly with what's going on, but be able to reap the rewards. And of course, this is all mortgaging Russia towards China. I mean, Putin has mortgaged Russia's future completely um, you know, towards the East uh, by doing what he's done. And I don't think that's really going to bounce back. And you know, as you say, they're now handing you know, uh, hand out for money from from China. Um, and but other countries are similarly turning the line who don't want to alienate Russia entirely because every spent on Russia or you know are trying to balance the relationship with China. And, you know, and you see these complexities. So though the UN votes are very clear in terms of numbers, when you look at the size of nation that's sitting on the fence or voting against, there's pretty important nations, you know, of the second tier uh, that are that are involved in that. Um, and certainly, hence, Russia's pushing the BRICS narrative very hard uh, mm. and aiming at those sorts of countries um, to you know, promote this new world order almost. And I think we are going to see a transition to that, whatever happens, um, you know, as a result of what's happening here. I mean, China's playing a much longer game. Um, it's got its own course to follow. Um, it's aware, of course, that people are now looking a little bit sideways at China, certainly in the commercial sphere uh, and obviously the political sphere. And the US, you know, ostensibly obviously focused on China, um, arguably therefore taking its eye off Russia. But, um, you know, that's where the US is focused for the future. Uh, that's not a course of action, again, that's going to find some happy ending here. You know, there is a ruption that will need to come. It doesn't need to come quickly, and China doesn't want it quickly. And there's evidence to suggest that any plans towards Taiwan have been shelved for now. Uh, but I don't think that'll be for very long. While they digest lessons of what's happened with Russia here and what it says about using military force to achieve objectives in this century, um, and whether their tactics are correct. You know, do Russia fail because of poor tactics and corruption? You know, would that happen to China as well? Um, I'm sure those are questions they're asking in Beijing. Do we have the same problems? You know, people are telling us what we want to hear. We're very good at parades, but our military actually doesn't really exercise itself. Um, it can't deal with war fighting. It can only deal with parade situations or, or scripted firepower demonstrations. Um, and they'll be looking at that very carefully, I think. And, uh, and that's certainly got them thinking. So China's in this funny position, but it stands to benefit hugely. And I wouldn't be surprised if any Russian-occupied areas of Ukraine in future are, are rebuilt using Chinese investment. Um, I think that's potentially quite likely unless sanctions uh, yeah. you know, manage effectively to stop that. But China's powerful enough to find ways to deal with these things, uh, I suspect. So uh, yeah, complicated set of dynamics and obviously a lot could yet change. I mean, we, we picture it as the cards, this action has thrown the cards up in the air, but the house of cards is building over decades, really since the end of the Cold War. And the huge fragility in the global system. COVID exacerbated it 
And that was its main feature, actually. I'm much more concerned about that in a way than the direct impacts of COVID because, uh, you know, I think the humankind can weather those. It, it's the, um, you know, in terms of the system, it's what COVID did by just applying stress to every part of the global system. I think that's been the real challenge. Um, and this this is therefore just knocked the house cards over to me. And we have to see where these things land. Because what does this mean for US midterms? What does this mean for future US presidents? What does this mean for the pivot uh, towards Asia? Uh, what does it mean for global Britain? You know, what does it mean for the French elections? Uh, tighter looking than they were, you know, the growth of right wing in Europe. So many of these things are going to be driven by what happens in this conflict and the outcome. So that's something uh, obviously we're looking at you know, very closely um, as it goes forward. Mm. I just want to pick up that, that you know narrative you mentioned uh, that Russia is pushing about uh, getting BRICS countries on their side. I mean, I think sort of it, it can be quite you know heartwarming to say that the entire world is against this sort of act of Russian aggression. But you know, realistically, a third of the world's population lives in countries uh, that are still politically on the fence about this, um, yeah. and certainly India is one of them. And you know, famously, sort of abstained. Uh, in, in the big Security Council vote that condemned sort of Russian aggression. And uh, what's really surprising to me about this is, I mean, despite, you know, all this talk about, you know, Biden's the summit of democracies or pivoting to Asia or, you know, the, the quadrilateral security dialogue that India is a part of, despite all that, India was able to abstain, not take really the U.S. side in it, um, and effectively kind of got away with it. Um, did you agree with that assessment that it got away with it? And, and if so, I mean going forward, does the U.S. really have any leverage on it uh, that it could use to sort of pull it back in the fold? There isn't, I mean, you know, and, but as you point out, I mean, India is a, you know, a global power, um, a nuclear power, um, world's most prosperous country, uh, populous country. Um, you know, it, it's got it's its power of its own. I mean, it doesn't just have to do what the U.S. says, of course. I think this is the, this is the fragmentation of the, the unipolar sort of order we saw after the Cold War when Liberal democracies led by the US have triumphed. Um, you know, the last 30 years have chipped away at the image of liberal democracy, without doubt. And, and we've probably seen that reach its nadir, uh, uh, certainly uh, just over a year ago, didn't we, really? I mean, um, watching the US still tearing itself apart uh, mm. in that way, I mean, couldn't have done more for our adversaries. And that was the irony of the people that felt they were doing something for the country. And actually, they were absolutely doing what the country's adversaries would, would want. Um, you know, more or less fostering a self-fostering a coup, um, which was insane. And you, again, look at what it was based on. It was all you know, extraordinary that that could even arise. But um, you know, there you have it. And and I think that discrediting has certainly lowered the uh, the moral authority. You know, uh, I think of the US and, and obviously particularly in the last part of the last decade. But that the rock for that was set in the nineties, really. I think, and obviously exacerbated by Iraq and things you mentioned. And, you know, uh, when you see another country going about things in such a terrible way as Russia is, though, you start to sort of realise that I'm, I'm very happy to be on the side I'm on, um, you know, in terms of my military service, um, because, you know, I do think we're trying to do the right things. We don't always get it right, but I do think we're trying to. And I think you know, there are other nations out there that aren't even interested in doing the right thing unless it suits exactly what they need. Um, you know, so I, I think there is a difference. But nonetheless, we don't have that same leverage and authority maybe that we did. And that's always been uh, the challenge, I think, for these nations. Now. So look, just being friends with the US isn't good enough. And, uh, actually, it, it doesn't necessarily mean as much as it once did to be a US ally at this point. And that's forcing nations to, to take a better balancing act. So, you know, what, what can the US do? I mean, India's got other people to choose from. You know, and in a way, I mean, it's, 
it's not uh you know is it more of a seller's market or a buyer's market um you know india is a, has things that people want as well um you know it's not powerless in any of these relationships so I think, you know, and most, especially larger nations, sort of find that actually they've got their own voice and they've got their, uh, they don't just have to pick a side. They can balance relationships. And, and India's always done that, actually, more than most. Um, but there are other nations that are just trying to balance. And, of course, any Southeast Asian nation would say, sorry, do you think this is something new? We've been doing this for decades. <laughs> We're trying to maintain the balance with China economically and the U.S. militarily. Of course, what it starts to throw up is, you know, is that the right balance? Is that where you actually need to be? And actually, what's the price tag of that economic reliance on some on China, you know, or what's the price tag of the military alliance on the United States? Um, so, I mean, a lot of nations, I think, are taking a hard look. And this is why I say these cards are up in the air. You know, we don't really know where it will fall for most of these nations. Um, but certainly, if the US is interested in dealing with China, it needs to be working with India to some extent. And so, it's not like they're going to have a total falling out about this. As, you know, there's other fish to fry, aren't there? And as China becomes more important, what India may or may not have done in relation to Russia will become less and less important. Let's not forget last August, everyone was absolutely obsessed with Afghanistan. And you know, probably haven't heard that talked about very much recently until today, when or the last couple of days when there's been an incident. But mm. you know, it's been pretty quiet on the news most of this year about Afghanistan. Right. Um, no, very fascinating. Uh, just to sort of wrap up as well really quickly. I mean, I always really like to ask people sort of you know what's often in the media isn't what risk professionals are thinking about uh professionally uh in terms of what's really coming up and what's out there to watch uh, i'm wondering if there's anything that you think of as an overlooked risk you know completely sort of detached from the russia ukraine situation an overlooked <laughs> risk uh that, that that might be coming up that we're not paying enough attention to that we should anything like that come to mind i mean it depends what time frame you want to pick um and anything I mean, like the well, I mean, in the background to all this, of course, you've got a global environmental crisis that's going to fundamentally mm. change a lot of people's living patterns, which puts even you know the Russia-Ukraine conflict into the shadows so, so slightly in terms of impacts. But that's a boiling frog, so no one really cares about it again. Um, but you know that will, I mean, you know, that will catch up with us um, in the, in that instance. You know that that is ticking away, and that is a long-term, obviously, risk, a long-term policy challenge. Uh, that isn't going to go away. And it's probably exacerbated actually by what's going on now and the attention's off it. And that's going to have obviously security and risk impacts in the short term, medium term and long term. Um, and again, it doesn't matter what the UK on its own does about changing environment. Um, it's not going to stop the sea levels around the UK from rising just because we did some good things if, if other countries don't. So you know, that is a complex situation. And I think still, because it's the horizon, time horizon is far enough out, people can't, actually put that risk into perspective. It's a little bit like pandemic risk. You know, it's going to come and bite you. We all knew that, but it's it sort of, there's always something that's more important and closer to the canoe than that mm. particular alligator. Um, so, you know, you cannot avoid that because it's going to fundamentally change a lot of things. So that one's always in the background and uh, and obviously always pushed over by the, the latest big thing. And beyond that is the point I made to you before that I think, uh, you know, all the cards are up in the air. We've got to see where everything lands from this, but. Um, COVID exacerbated all the strains in the global system. Uh, you know, that is still going on, of course. And if you look at all the supply chain that's stacked up outside uh, uh, Shanghai at the moment, uh, you know, that's going to have impacts as we go forward. Um, and life's certainly going to get harder than it has been. We've had the best of times, I'm afraid to say, I think, um, for, um, for global business. This is now the bit where you have to work real hard to, to make global business work coming up. Um, and navigating that 
in every dimension, it's just going to be more challenging as a result of, of everything we're seeing. Um, so you know, my answer might always be, you know, ask me again in six months because there'll be more clarity, but that's not an answer we're allowed to give in this field because people need to know now. So, um, you know, we've touched on, we've touched on all the things that, that keep us awake at night. There's a reason they've been keeping many of us awake at night for 20 years. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean they're going to go away. Um, and certainly the Middle East is, remains primed um, for some significant disruption there. And particularly as food shortages start to bite in parts of Africa and the Middle East, uh, gas prices, oil prices, cooking fuel prices all increase. I mean, that that is looking towards disorder and lots of things. Again, talk about the pebbles in the landslide. All these things add up. Um, so that's very much what we're tracking. And it can boil over in unpredictable places. Uh, and you've got to be ready for that as well. So um, what we hope is that we're always kind of shocked by these things but we're never quite surprised and that's what i would say to everyone you've got to be prepared for the shocks but you shouldn't be you shouldn't be surprised by something happens i mean if you can predict it to the day and the hour you know that's great but no one could have predicted 9 11 with that degree of accuracy right and if you had no one would listen to you mm. so it's okay to be shocked when something actually finally happens but you should never be surprised that it did i guess that's the one thing I'd, i think people should take away Justin, incredibly fascinating discussion. I think one that we're going to keep thinking uh, back to as sort of war in Ukraine involves uh, and, and keep thinking about, like you said, the pebbles in the landslide that make all the difference. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. To find out more about London Politica, visit our website, londonpolitica.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. That's all for this episode, folks. Stay tuned, stay safe, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>